the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 241 for Monday, February 1st, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the show. I'm Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. And on the other end is John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. Chilly, eh, not not too chilly. Chilly, but survivable, right? Yeah, we haven't had any major weather events yet, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, it's been uh, it's been on and off, very cold, and then you know, yeah, whatever. Yep. And anyways, it's, Dave, I think both. Both you and I are getting very excited because uh, there's this event coming up next week. I forget the name of it. Oh, the Olympics start. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. No, Macworld Expos next week. It it starts actually on Tuesday, the 9th. The Uh, conference, right? Yep. Conferences are the 9th and the 10th. Actually, the conferences are the 9th through the 13th. And then the exhibits start Thursday. Uh, the 11th through the 13th, we will be out there. I'm I'm flying in. Actually, I'm flying in Monday night because we have a Macworld All Star Band rehearsal on Tuesday. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're you're flying in Wednesday, is that right, John? I am coming in Wednesday afternoon. So I yes. might, we might get to have dinner together on Wednesday night. Um. Well, there, there's a flight there's schedule a, permitting. Well, there's a well, yeah, I, I assume that'll work well, but I think there's some parties. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got some party invites, but yeah, yeah, no, it'd be great for you and I to do dinner at a at a you know. Yeah. Uh, undisclosed location. <laughs> so we don't got mobbed by, by the fans. That's right. Oh, That's kidding. right. Actually, if we figure it out, I'll, I'll tweet it out. And, you know, so we OK, let's talk about contact information. We're going to we're going to mix up the format oh right gosh. out of the gate. Well, wow. you know, this whole show, as with most of our shows, is filled with questions of yours that we're going to do our best to answer. Uh, follow ups from you and tips from you. And actually, we've got some great, cool stuff found. Uh, some stuff that we found and a ton of stuff that you guys found. So, uh, but we want to talk about how to get this stuff to us. Uh, the, our, our most favoritist way is, uh, <laughs> by sending us an email feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Or and I heard you, Dave, you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's right. Feed, it's early in the show. We're crystal clear feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Or if you're a premium subscriber, do send it to premium at MacGeekGab.com. That way we know uh, where the uh, where the comments are going. And you can not only send text in the email, but of course you can record an audio file. The iPhone makes it easy with the voice memo app or however else you'd like to do it. Uh, and that does give us the highest quality audio file uh, that we can get from you. If you want to send in an audio comment and you don't have or uh, have the means to or, or you, you can't or don't want to email us, uh, you certainly can call 206-666-GEEK, John, which is? Well, last I checked, that was 4335. That's right. 206-666-4335. Uh, you can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab as well. And I believe that covers all of the uh, the incoming and interactive comment and well comment. of course we we also enjoy and 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 they keep coming and we love them um you know we we got that a uh, little nod from uh apple and the uh you know the their award there which again thank you to all the people that listen for for just uh yeah. help. without you we would not have you know gotten that and I, uh so itunes comments are always welcome i i personally like the positive ones but constructive criticism is always welcome yeah we read everything we do. All right, let's uh, let's let's dive in. Michael, 
I, I'm, I think I'm going to paraphrase Michael's email here because his okay. was not the only email we got. And his is about three pages long. Uh, many emails this week and a, a couple of Twitter conversations as well. Oh, you know, we uh, we didn't mention Twitter feeds. Uh, I, I derailed us, so we might as well oh, just mention them. Of uh, course, John Efron is yep. me. Dave Hamilton is you. Yep. Matt Geekab is the feed for things specific to the show. Mac Observer is the fountain of all knowledge and wisdom in the <laughs> Mac community. And then I think uh, actually we we leverage this uh, with the uh, the uh, the iPad event. Uh, uh, I believe it is it Mac Observer it's Live. TMO Live. It's, it's, TMO no, Live. I'm sorry. Uh, I forget to be honest with you which one it is. I don't know. But we idea. tell you before we we do a live event and. Yep. Um, Anyways, uh, that was that was one that uh yeah a few people <laughs> paid attention to yeah, but we're not going to talk about iPad because uh, there has been so much being said in the media. Oh uh, yeah, it was funny because actually Paul hey, well, Kemp, no, 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 he, hang on, we're not going to go up on this tangent. We got off on one. We're no, going to get I'm back sorry. to Michael's no question. Tangent. Focus. That's right. Go. So uh, lots of conversations about computers that won't go to sleep, uh, and there are a couple of obvious reasons that this might happen. Uh, and and Michael went through. In fact, Michael went through a, an ordeal where he documented everything. He was very, very uh, honorable of the troubleshooting process, so much so that Apple replaced his machine for him. And in the end, his wow. new machine is having the same problem. He's got a MacBook Pro. But a lot of the conversations we've had are about iMacs, desktop machines and other laptop machines. So let's talk about what might keep a machine from sleeping and also how to figure out what might keep a machine from sleeping or what might be keeping your machine from sleeping. So John, you, you, well, you want to start well, this one, John? Well, a few things. What I want to say is that, that there are a couple of ways to get your machine to sleep. So one is you set up in your um, uh, system preferences, energy saver. Mm. Um, I believe uh, buried in there somewhere are parameters where you would like the machine to go to sleep. Now I think it's, it's, True that if you manually, so uh, on most machines, if you hit the power button and you say sleep, it will almost always go to sleep when you demand. But but, but I don't think we're talking about that. No, now, we're talking about time does, sleep. That's right. right. Now, Dorm. if your machine does not go to sleep when you hit sleep, then then you got a big problem if you're trying to do it manually. But so, yeah, so, so you're talking, talking about, about you're you're talking about. Two different types of sleep. One would be akin to going to the Apple menu and choosing the sleep command. And there's and then you could also, like you said, hit the power button. And then with the dialogue that comes up, choose sleep. Those do right. those both do essentially the same thing. And then there is the scheduled sleep that happens after some period of inactivity on your Mac. Right. Right. And the thing is, is that sometimes, as has been pointed out, the machine will not sleep. Well, Dave, where the heck could I go to get advice on why this may not be working? And, you know, thank goodness that Apple has their knowledge base. And there is an article. It's article HT1776, Mac OS X, why your Mac might not sleep or stay in sleep mode. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but this basically covers a whole bunch of things. Well, I'll touch on a few of them, but it touches on a whole bunch of things that if you do these things, your machine will not go to sleep because I think the, the, the Mac takes great care to not interrupt things that you'd like doing um, <laughs> and putting the machine to sleep. And, and, and some of the ones I'll highlight right now is if you're watching a movie, if you're listening to iTunes, if you're running a backup, um, or if you're downloading a file. The, the, the Mac OS uh, uh, in the background, I think, is basically looking at 
are you doing anything, uh, you know, that that's drawing a lot of processor or or just uh, something that I don't think you want me to interrupt? And and I would agree that you know, watching a movie or listening to music or things like that are probably things that that you don't want the machine to sleep uh, unless you explicitly, as we covered before, uh, do it. So this article does a great job. We will of course link to it. Um, but that is my take on on some of the reasons um, that you know, the machine will not go to sleep because it doesn't really think it should. Yep. Yep. Okay. So uh, a couple of other things to think about are what else, if anything, do you have plugged into your machine? Uh, USB devices, keyboard, mouse activity on those is enough to reset the sleep timer. If you tell your computer, go to sleep after 15 minutes of inactivity. Well, each time you move your mouse, that timer goes back down to zero. Uh, or go, but it goes back up to 15, if you will. I mean, depending on whether you're counting down or counting up, but you know, your, your 15 minutes resets every time you interact with the machine, touching something on the keyboard, touching the mouse. And in previous shows, we've talked about how very sensitive mice, uh, or mice that are set to a very high sensitivity, uh, can, you know, even a fan blowing can, can be enough to do this. Other things plugged into your Mac. Hard drives, external devices, you know, USB or firewire devices in theory shouldn't cause problems, but can. And one place that I've found helpful, although it's not always obvious, uh, is going into the console and looking at the all messages uh, screen. Mm. You will see lots and lots of activity being reported here because, of course, it's all messages and the console. When I say console, I mean, going to applications, utilities and launch the console program that's out there, mm-hmm. the console application. Uh, it, you, you know, if you look and especially if you if you do something where you say, let the sleep timer, you know, set it down to one minute and then just sit and watch the console. You should get a feel. You should see something appear during that minute. It might might not be at the beginning of the minute. It might not be at the end, but something in the middle that's causing that sleep timer to reset. It usually is reported there uh, if it's something other than, you know, keyboard or mouse input. So uh, so that that's that's the second or another thing to check. And then lastly, John, I've found and I have this problem constantly here in the house. Mm. You know, I've got a bunch of Macs. They're all in different rooms. One, some are in the office, some are across the way in the house. So, you know, uh, even different buildings. And if I have, I do a lot of file sharing where I'll say, oh, I want to connect to uh, the iMac in the studio and, and launch QuickBooks and, and run, run, you know, some, uh, some reports or whatever. Well, once I quit QuickBooks, the file sharing connection is still active. And that, in my experience here, will not allow the computer to go to sleep. So, uh, so that's, that's another thing. And I, I have to, oh, I have to remember, oh yeah, go into the finder, eject the, uh, you know, the, the put, hit the little eject button next to the iMac. All right. Now the iMac sleep timer will be reset and it'll, it'll be allowed to go to sleep. Or if you're connected to a file server, sometimes that's enough to keep the, the, you know, that computer, the client computer from going to sleep. So l- look at your network connections, look at any connections you have that, that can, that can also cause issues. Mm-hmm. Any anything else, John? Um, well, I promised I wouldn't read part of the help file, but, but I will because I, I'm looking farther into it, and this is important. So some of it touches on what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, some things that reset, as you t- stated, there's a sleep timer, and if certain things happen, it gets reset. And uh, some of the other things they mentioned here, hard drive access. Um, you may want to, in the energy saver, the, there is a setting somewhere, 
Maybe you can find it, Dave, while, mm-hmm. while I'm babbling here, um, which says put hard drive to sleep when it's not being used. Um, you may want to enable that. Um, but also they say is, uh, so one is pointed out, if you move the mouse or the trackpad or anything hits an input device, that will reset the sleep timer. Right. There are a few other things. And actually, I see another one here. We've run into this before with, with uh, uh, some uh, uh, readers, listeners. Expansion cards. Some devices, their yeah. drivers suck. Or they're just not written properly in that if you have a certain, and this is, is really not, of course, uh, something with the, uh, you know, the, the, the portables, but certainly desktop machines. Some cards, just the driver or, or the nature of the card, for whatever reason, is always churning and, and your machine will not go to sleep because it's always uh, generating activity. So um, this article, I think, is excellent. It touches on pretty much anything that will prevent the machine from, from uh, going to sleep. So Yeah, that's great. That's link great. to that, but I think you and I have covered pretty much anything um, obvious or maybe not obvious that uh, <laughs> that will make the the system uh, say, "Hey, I'm doing something important, and and I really don't think I should go to sleep because that would just make you unhappy." Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Uh, on to Taylor here, John. Yeah, Taylor. We'll, we'll, sure. We'll get, Ooh, we'll this get, is we'll, a good one. We'll I like geeky. this one. Yeah. Ooh. Hi, John and Dave. This is Taylor from Dallas, Texas, and I have a question about something I'll talked about in episode two thirty six using SSH to log into a computer whose screen won't turn on. You mentioned that allow remote login had to be enabled on the computer beforehand. I have typically left that setting disabled because I don't want, want any nefarious characters to be able to try to hack into my machine. But since my computer is connected to the internet through a router and I have a dynamic IP address with my ISP, if I allow remote login, will the combination of the dynamic IP address and router protect me from being hacked from over the internet? Uh, thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. And here's where you cut me off. All right. Uh, we have two questions here, I think. Now, Dave, yes. I'll, I'll toss the first one to you. Okay. And I think dynamic IP or, or dynamic DNS, could we say here? No, just dynamic IP. Oh. Uh, right. That's what he's asking about. Because his All router... Right, that's squirrely. They're, they're not squirrely. And I think uh, dynamic uh DYN, DNS, and, and these guys may, may get around that problem in that you're, you're never guaranteed when you do DHCP, um, the, though I got to say, with, with my computer, probably your computer, with my provider, I don't think my IP address has changed in ages, and I cycle power my machine. Now, personally, I do not leave my machine on when I'm not home. I just, it eliminates a problem of <laughs> someone, and, and I really don't have a need to, to get to my machine when, when I'm not here. And, and that's just me. Okay. So, so the best security is if your machine's off, nobody can get to it. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so Taylor is, is asking about uh, what he can do to protect his computer from, you know, we talked about in a previous show, we talked about how you want to enable remote login uh, so that you can get to your computer if it freezes up. Right. So uh, his question is, if I've done this, Am I am I leaving my computer wide open to the world? Now, uh, the answer is, in general, no, if you're behind a no. router. And and the reason is, right. your, you know, your router protects you. Your router sits. It doesn't necessarily protect you. <laughs> your router sits between you and the outside world. And we talked about some of the magic of network address translation and all of that. Uh, but in general, Connections coming into your computer from the outside world are rejected by the router unless it knows what to do with them. So unless you have told your router, 
any incoming, you know, terminal sessions, route them to my computer, unless you've told it that you got nothing. Right. So, so that's the, uh, that's the gist of this. You, you are protected by your router in that case, but you want to be aware of this, especially as you go to hotels or, you know, Starbucks or whatever, where you've got, you know, many people unknowns, if you will, uh, people do sit at Starbucks and, and try and figure out, Oh, Hey, look, somebody's got a, you know, SSH port open. I'm going to go and, and have some fun, but it, you know, they would, they would need to know one of your passwords to get in and, and that sort of thing. So, well, well- they have to know a few things. So the first thing they have to know, which um, I'll mention here, SSH, I believe, is on uh, TCP port 22. Right. Is that right? That's right. Yep. It, it, the computer sits and listens on port 22 for anyone that wants to connect directly to it. Uh, once you've turned this remote login on. That's right. Now, I'm not sure if you can change that um, within the Mac itself. So... Uh, a little mini tangent. You is can. You, okay, excellent. But and that's but, good. But not uh, not in um, not not easily, right? It's it. You have to go and edit yeah. a, a file in the command line. There's no way to do it in the okay. in the user okay. interface. Yeah. One thing I want to suggest, and, and and it's a mini tangent, but I think it's useful. So if you do want to get to your machine from the internet at large, which as you pointed out, Dave, normally is not enabled on your router, your time capsule, your time machine. Um, and, and most uh, third-party routers, that's not enabled. As you said, it'll reject the connection unless you explicitly enable it and say, okay, port 22, come on in, and, and you can connect to me. Correct. Um, one of the suggestions I would have, so I have a couple of suggestions to protect you in that case. One is maybe you want to do some little NAT magic. In well, that- wait, wait, wait. What? what? Okay. NAT magic isn't going to change the port that your computer answers on, right, John? Uh, you're correct. No, okay. but if your machine is behind a router, yes. you can change the port that someone outside of your machine has to connect to. If you even want to allow that. If you, so if you want to allow it, I, I, would, I would strongly discourage, if you want to allow remote login from the internet at large, yeah. I personally would not put it on port 22 because you know every script kitty and hacker is going to be looking for port 22 and they're going to see it and say, yeah. Right. So what you could do is to do a little nap mapping and, and uh, t- time capsule and other devices will certainly let you do this is maybe you want to pick a really bizarre outside port, which is certainly SSH will allow you like pretty much any, uh, you know, command line client will let you select a non-standard port if you want to. So one, one of my suggestions, if you, do want to enable SSH remotely, put it on a really wacky high numbered port or something yep. from the outside. So, uh, for example, port 12345. So, what you do is when you set up your NAT, say, okay, port 12345 on the outside maps to port 22 on the inside. That will discourage your basic script kiddies and, and, and your amateurs. Um, that's one method of protecting yourself. Another one, and I, I dug into this a little bit, Dave. I don't have all the details on it, but um, and I have not done this, but I've read up on it and I understand the basics, is SSH normally will let anybody come in and say, hi, how's it going? And you got to provide a username and password and you're in, right? That's Yeah, that's one way. Yeah, but that's right. But there is a mode where you can require public key authentication. And without going into great detail about what public key and authentication is, it essentially will block anybody who does not have a particular encryption key from even 
getting to the point where they can log in. And that if the key, so public key, private key, uh, again, very basic. It's a system where you have to have two keys. And unless you have both, one is going to be on the computer you're trying to access. One is on the computer that, uh, and, and we have an article that goes into detail about how to do this. If you don't have the corresponding key, which uh, suffice to say is pretty much impossible to guess, you're never going to get to the point. Now, uh, again, I have not actually implemented this. I understand I, the theory. I have. So, it, it, oh, yes. you have? Yeah. So, it, so it, if you don't have the key, it's pretty much going to say, get lost. I have no idea who you are. Well, no. Uh, by default, the SSH, the SSH server. So when you turn on, you go into sharing and you turn on remote login, mm. uh, you know, allow remote login on your Mac. That turns on the SSH server, right? Which will allow you to get, in case that hasn't been clear, allow you to get a remote command, a command line on that computer from some other computer now, you know, on your local network. Or as you pointed out, John, if you do some router magic, you can get to it from the internet. But uh, and and so it will allow you to connect any way I, with a password, you know, a username and password if you want, or using this public key encryption. The cool part about public key encryption is you can set it up so that you don't even have to log in. Uh, you know, I've got my computers here set up so that if I try to connect from, you know, my MacBook Pro to the iMac, it doesn't ask me for a password anymore because I've done this public key thing where I generate a key on the iMac that I can then hand out to other computers and say, okay, yeah, you're cool. You know, we'll let you in. I put that key over there and then boom, I just say, you know, SSH space iMac enter and boom, I'm, I've got a command line. I don't need to worry about passwords. Uh, very, very handy, but, okay, you, but you need to make some changes. To say, in, if you don't have the key, you're not getting in. No, again, by default, the computer will allow public key. And it will mm -hmm. also allow username and password. Okay. So it, it, you can get in either way. What you'd have to do is go into your, and you got to do this from the command line. If you want to turn right. off the ability to connect with username and password, right. you have to go into the command line and edit, I think it's private slash Etsy slash SSHD underscore config and put a line in there with an article that you found, John, that says something along the lines of, where was it? You sent me something before. But suffice to say, if you set it up in this mode where you demand a public key. Yes. If you don't have it, you, you will not get in. Correct. And you, you disable the, the traditional username and password thing. Okay. I just want right. to be clear. That's okay, right. So. Yeah. yeah. And there is an we'll article. Those... You, you put this allowed authentications line is what it is. And you only list public key and then boom. But remember, it, you know, if your reason for enabling remote terminal access on your computer was so that you could get in with your iMac with your uh, you know iPhone or whatever to connect if the machine's frozen you need to do all of your homework ahead of time if you're going to limit from username and password login you've got to set up mm. all the clients that you would want to connect right. beforehand otherwise you know you've sort of thwarted the purpose M my advice turn it on leave it in its default state but don't open a hole on your router to let people from the outside world right. in. And that's that's probably safe enough. So to answer your question, Taylor, yes, <laughs> you're safe. <laughs> OK, and I think we, we got it pretty close. I, I hope Scott is not furrowing his brow. <laughs> Scott will be fine. <laughs> he's, he's one of our favorite listeners. Um, our first. And, and he's. Uh, and he, oh, cut. go ahead. Of course. Our first sponsor, Dave. Go. Is smile on my Mac with 
PDF Pen. Now, PDF Pen is a piece of software. It's available for $49.95, but of course, you can get a free trial for 30 days. And PDF Pen will give you a lot of control over what you can do with PDFs. Uh, it's got the ability to paste in uh, other bits of graphic and text over a PDF and then save it out as a normal PDF that anybody can read. So for example, you've got a contract coming in, you want to put your signature on it. You have a scanned version of your signature. You paste that on top of it. Boom, save it out as a PDF. And to the recipient, it just looks like, you know, the contract with your signature and nothing different. Uh, it's also got the ability to edit text, which is very, very interesting. You can highlight text in a PDF and edit it. And, uh, and, and, and that can be very, very handy if you've got, you know, something you need to do, or you've got, you know, some word you need to change or an address you need to edit. Boom. You can do that right inside the PDF. It's also got, let's say you, somebody sends you a PDF of a fax or a scan where the text is not editable. It's just graphical text. Well, PDF pen has an OCR, an optical character recognition engine built in where it can take that text and turn it, take that graphic and turn it in to that same editable text. Uh, you can use it to merge multiple pages together and rearrange your PDFs and, uh, and PDF pen pro will even allow you to uh, create PDF forms. And that's only ninety nine ninety five. Again, PDF pen and PDF pen pro are both available as a 30 day free trial from smile on my and PDF Pen Pro is $99.95 and PDF Pen is just $49.95 from smileonmymac.com. On to Adrian, John. This is going to be a fun one. If, if you thought we butted heads on the last one. <laughs> Go. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Adrian in uh, California. And I had a question just switched over to um, the Mac and was curious about defragging my hard drive in Windows. Uh, this is a common thing that I did a lot to make sure my system was running well. And just wanted to get your feedback on whether defrag software is needed and then also any other tips or preferences. I, I assume cocktail, since I've heard you talk about that, is a good one as well. Uh, I heard something about preference cleaner being good as well, just to kind of keep my Mac speedy. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye-bye. All right, Adrian. Uh, do you, uh, you want to take this one, John, or you want me to... I, I'm going to lead. I'm okay. going to lead here, and then you'll follow, or, or yeah. you may... I'll follow. Anyways, um, my personal opinion is don't touch this. Do not defragment your OS X hard drive. Now, uh, it sounds like he's coming from the Windows camp, which it's almost expected that you have to do this, or at least it's built into the operating system, at least XP, when I've used it. Um the thing is, we're going to link to, yes, yet another article that will be in the show notes. Um, and Apple has an article. Um, by the way, if you want to find these support articles, support.apple.com slash KB, which is knowledge base, slash, and then if we mention the article number, which in this case, I'm going to mention it, HT1375. And the article is titled, About Disk Optimization with Mac OS X. And the thing is, for the most part, um, Mac OS X will make an attempt to optimize your drive in the background without your knowledge. It, it'll do the right thing. Um, however, there are cases where it'll struggle. And I would say the biggest problem is when your drive starts getting full. And they even point this out. that They have a question here. Do, you need to, do I need to optimize? And I would say, uh, once your drive starts getting a little bit too full, 
Um, I don't know the guideline. I would say, you know, if you're reaching 10 to 20% of your capacity of your drive, um, maybe that's a good guideline. I don't know. I'm just pulling that out of the air. Um, your drive's going to start to get unhappy because it's just running out of space to, to, to write out big files. So the one point I'm going to make, as they point out, is that Mac OS X does have a defragmentation capability that it will do when it feels necessary. Um, the other thing is that, and I even saw some of my Twitter Twitter friends, uh, I saw one, oh my gosh, she had sh- such a terrible time because she did a defrag, and the errors were, uh, there were errors galore when she was trying to do this. It was like, un, you know, unidentified fragment or extent nope. file and this and that. And uh, I just got to say, my personal opinion, uh, I have never done a defrag. The last time I did an OS ten convinced me that I should not ever do this ever again. Get a big enough hard drive or make sure you have enough free space. And that is my position on this, Dave. And I will hand it to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, in general, I agree with you. It, it, the need to defrag has decreased dramatically with what they've added to Mac OS 10 since I think about 10.3 when they did that hot Correct. file uh, clustering that you mentioned, right? Where, you know, where the, the files that are, are necessary and regularly used that aren't too big are constantly defragmented by the OS anyway, right? So, uh, so it really does decrease the need for this. However... Uh, I do think that defragmenting, you know, and I think it might be every two years. I mean, it depends on how you use your machine, but certainly if you've had a machine for more than two years and you've gotten within, say, 90% of filling that drive at any point in time or especially at multiple points in time, uh, I think defragging is for you. Uh, you know, again, before the two year mark, unless you're constantly sitting at a full drive and, you know, moving things around. And the reason that the the the, uh, the amount to which you fill the drive matters uh, is because the, as the drive gets full, it has less contiguous space. So anytime you save a new file, it has to, you know, break the file apart and it starts doing that more and more regularly until it's just constant and rampant. And that can really slow things down. Now, again, there's this hot files clustering, but that doesn't affect your apps. It doesn't affect uh, a lot of your documents. It's just some of those, you know, regularly read system files and, uh, and, and, you know, some of the other stuff. But, but, but it can't do everything. So I think past the two-year mark, it is worth considering a defrag now. How to do it. The first thing is run file system repair. Now, you know, disk utility built into the OS has uh, a file system. You know, it's got that that verifier repair file system that that's mandatory. But you're not going to be able to do a defrag with with the OS anyway. So you're going to need some third party software. ProSoft's uh, Drive Genius is the one that I would recommend in this case. It's the one I've used. And the first thing you want to do is run their disk repair utility on it, too, because you don't want what John's Twitter follower went through, where, where she had all these errors that cropped up in the middle of a defrag. And then just run the defrag and, and you're, you're, you know, you're OK. Um, I, I do I do recommend it in 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 those limited circumstances, though, because I because I did it here and I especially with a laptop where those drives are slow anyway, uh, it, it can make a right. speed difference. So do so you bring up a good point now or. The other way to do this, which is kind of severe, 
but it will accomplish the task is to get something like carbon copy cloner. Yep. Or um, uh, what else we got there? Um, Super duper. Yep. Do a full backup, wipe the internal drive, and then do a full restore. That should write everybody back in a nice orderly manner. Or at least that's the uh, what what the Apple article here suggests. Yeah, no, that's not a bad idea. That's right. Then that would be the uh, I'll say the the poor man's way, or certainly the you know the inexpensive way of doing it. But it assumes that you have another drive that you can use to clone out to. Right. <laughs> so right now, the other thing though, Dave, um, and I know you're uh, more of an SSD fan than I am. Um, as far as I know, SSDs are not prone to this, or at least never not in the sense that mechanical drives are. They, they certainly suffer slowdown for a different reason. But if you have an SSD, then do not, uh, I would say do not try to defrag it because <laughs> that's the, if, if the utility thing. even tries to do it, Ugh. it's probably going to ruin everything. And I, I would hope that the utilities that try to do a defrag will say, whoa, you're in an SSD. I'm, I'm not touching this because this is bad news. Because the thing is, SSDs do not suffer from the problem of, you know, moving the drive head. No. Because there is no drive head. Right. There's just basically a big block of RAM. Um, again, they have their own problems. But um, so if you have an SSD, don't don't try to defrag or you're, you're going to be, <laughs> I, I think you're going to be very unhappy. Yeah, so, no, um, I, I agree. Yeah. With an SSD, you know, you've got basically unlimited read cycles in terms of the, the number of times you can read data from the drive, but you do have a limited, it's a, it's a big limit, but you do mm-hmm. have limited write cycles. And the issue is, uh, you know, a defrag is doing, you know, 10 times the amount of Lots writing. Of Lots of work. Yeah, than you normally would do because it's moving files. It's going to say, okay, well, you know, this file, I, you know, it's got 46 blocks and they all need to be together, but I can't do that yet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take 30 of those blocks and I'm going to read them from here and write them over there. And then I'm going to take, you know, 16 of those blocks and read them from here and write them on this other spot. And then I'm going to clean up all this other space by moving all these other apps around. Then I'm going to go take those 30 yeah. and those 16 and put them back together. So now you've got, you know, at least three different writes happening for one file and for no gain. Uh, so, yeah, with an SSD, if you for some reason feel like a defrag or something along those lines is necessary, and I can't imagine why you would. But if you did uh, follow the uh, the carbon copy cloner or super duper instructions where you just you know, pull the data off the drive, format it, wipe it down completely, and then put the stuff back on. So, mm-hmm. yep. All right. Are we good on that one, John? We're good. All right. Brian asks, and it's a good question. I'm using iBank right now, but it seems so frustrating due to basic features not being there or shortcuts they have taken. Do you use programs on the Mac to track your finances? I keep hearing bad reports still about Quicken for the Mac. There really does not seem to be a front runner on the Mac side. This is the one software area that switchers from Windows have trouble getting past. And it's true, Brian. Yeah, the the personal financial management software market on the Mac uh, is not up to par with uh, with its Windows counterparts, right? Especially Quicken which is clearly the market leader, at least, uh, you know, on the Windows side, uh, it it works on the Mac. I, I use Quicken. We've used Quicken here uh, for 10 plus years to manage our household finances. And what we've done is we've sort of let it drive 
our decisions in terms of what banks we use and, and, and all that. We do like to do all our banking online. We like to do our statements online. So we just make sure that we're signing up with a bank that has direct connect capability with Quicken. Uh, and, you know, most of the big ones do. And it works. It works great. We're able to track everything. I can keep reports. I can generate reports every year that I send to the accountant. Uh, there are some, you know, if you're coming over from Windows, you're probably going to see some frustration in terms of things that missing from the reports. But it is functional and reliable and, uh, you know, it works, but it's not great. Um, there really isn't anything great. Uh, I know that Quicken just bought Mint, uh, which sort of reinvigorated them in, in a lot of different ways. But at the same time, they shelved their plans to water down Quicken for the Mac. And based on my understanding, they Intuit is moving forward with a complete redevelopment of Quicken for the Mac. That's that's going to be a full fledged product for, you know, for 2010 release. I don't I don't think they have a release date out. But uh, but yeah. it looked pretty grim about six months ago mm-hmm. when they said that they were going to do a very, you know, that it was going to be this home finance thing. But it was just going to be really watered down and terrible. And they, they they got feedback on it and, you know, and shelved it. And now they're they're developing, you know, the next rev uh, from the ground up of Quicken for the Mac as a full fledged product. So uh, so there's hope there. Uh, it, it may not ever be feature parity with Windows version. But but it is certainly functional and and it works. So, you know, you may just want to throw in the towel and admit the Mac is not the best platform. And I know people are shaking their fist. (laughs) The Mac is not necessarily the best platform for everything. So, you know, you may want to throw in the towel, get VirtualBox, get VMware, get Parallels and 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 deal with the unpleasantness of running that one Windows application because it is the uh, one of the best out there. The other thing I'll suggest, Dave, is that, uh, hey, again, on the Apple site, if you go to www.apple.com slash downloads slash macOS 10 slash business underscore finance, there appears to be, now, uh, none of these names really, uh, you know, yeah, there's... Uh, I, I'm not familiar with them, but there are a lot of people that are writing what, what appears to be applications that tend uh, or claim to handle your personal finances. Take a look. Maybe you'll find one. A lot of them are demos or shareware. Give them a spin, and uh, maybe you'll find one you like. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It depends on what you need. You know, if you need something full-featured, I think Quicken is, is going to be your best bet. Um, but again, coming from the Windows side, you, you may you may not be entirely happy. So. Uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned VirtualBox, John. So I'm going to go ahead and and uh, let Ben ask a question about mm-hmm. VirtualBox. Hi, uh, John and Dave. This is uh, Ben from Prince and Mac Users Group. I have an interesting question. I've been starting to play with VirtualBox 3.1, and the one thing I noticed is it has a lot of configuration abilities except for printing. The only way I found reliably to use printing, at least with Windows 2000, is in Install Bonjour for Windows, but I'm getting some mixed results when I use NAT as opposed to uh, connection sharing where a separate uh, IP number is, is for the virtual machine. I'm wondering if you all have any insights on printing from VirtualBox. Thank you. All right. John? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I got no. No. <laughs> Seriously. So, no, I've used VirtualBox and like many VMs, what it does is what he's pointed out is it will do a NAT thing. So, 
the Windows machine will typically get an IP address that is not the same as it'll be a, a privately routed IP address. Privately inside, it's it's almost doing a second level of of yes. of of routing, right? You've got your router that manages your network, and then inside your Mac, your Mac is sharing its IP address with itself and with its Windows virtual right. box. Is that is that the right yes, way to yes. say that? Okay. Yeah. So one question I have is, I, I think I heard him correctly. What the heck is he doing running Windows two thousand? <laughs> this is Windows. That's, this that's is two thousand ten. We're twenty ten, man. So I, I would strongly encourage him to kind of kind of you know kick it up a notch at least to windows xp or something like that but the the uh, i have had success in, in in my home environment of um at least with so one thing he mentions which maybe i think just because windows 2000 is kind of dated but bonjour the whole deal about bonjour is that it's a zero conf um as they call it um, util, uh, you know, protocol where you pretty much don't have to think about addresses. It just kind of finds it. So, so that's one good suggestion is use bonjour, printers that have bonjour connectivity. Um, the other thing is that it, typically when I have a printer that is networked, it has, it, it's an IP printer and Windows certainly has the ability. I'm not entirely sure about Windows 2000, but I certainly know with Windows XP, if you set up a, and I think it's a LPR LPD printer, as long as you have the IP address and you have the proper driver, um, you're good to go. And I have done this under VirtualBox. So, uh, again, number one, uh, I don't know why he's on 2000. That 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 is a deprecated, old, crusty OS. Maybe you want to bump it up to XP or something like that. Um, but I see no reason why you couldn't connect at least using either TCP IP and the LPR LPD protocol or Bonjour, assuming it works correctly under the the Windows 2000, which I, I again I'm kind of questioning. So um, that's what I got. All right, okay. Uh, so you know, John, sometimes you've got your uh, you got some project going on. You create a folder on your computer if you're lucky, or you you just start blasting stuff all over your desktop and you're trying to organize all these files. Well, our second sponsor for the show piece of software called notebook from circus ponies might be the answer there. What notebook does is it allows you to create as, as you would guess a notebook and you can create these for different topics or different subjects or however you want to organize your life. And then into these, you can start typing or you can pull text files that you've already written PDFs that you have images that you have audio, you know, all this different stuff. And then you can start tagging it and say, okay, well, you know, uh, this is, this is a recipe, but this is one that's good for dinner. Or this is good for breakfast. And you've got all your recipes in here. And then you can go back and say, okay, I want to search. And, you know, I know I put this recipe in three weeks ago, so you can search by a date range, or you can say, oh, I know this was a breakfast recipe that I put in three weeks ago. And so you can search for it that way and really narrow it down. In fact, with what they call multi-dex, you can actually search across multiple notebooks that you've created. So if you know when you put something in, but you're like, gosh, did I put it in my household notebook maybe? Or is it really in my recipe notebook? Did I, did I confuse that? And so you can search across the, the range. Circus Ponies Notebook is available at circusponies.com. Uh, it is, of course, available for a free download. And then it's $49.95 after 30 days if you uh, if you decide to keep it and want to keep using it. So Circus Ponies Notebook at CircusPonies.com. 
And John, I think it's time for Cool Stuff Found. One of my favorite times in the show. Oh, do that? Yeah. It's got follow-up. Yeah, well, if you read the Skype chat, see, you'd you'd catch up with the uh with the deal. So, uh Cool Stuff Found. The first thing we have is it's something I like to use, and it, I'd forgotten all about this and then saw it. Actually, John Welch was mentioning it on Twitter today. I thought, oh, yeah, we got to throw this back in. It's a program called Perian at Perian.org, P-E-R-I-A-N.org. And what it is, is it's, it's kind of a unified QuickTime plugin that it's free. You don't have to pay any money. It's open source, and it pulls all these different things together. So you know how sometimes you get a QuickTime movie and it's like, you know, Windows this or MPEG that. And it's like, oh, yeah, QuickTime doesn't support this. So you're like, well, I got to get VLC or I got to get the flip for Mac player and I got to get that plug. I got to get this. If you install Perian out of the gate and it's a simple install and it actually sits as a little preference pane so you can turn it on and off and it manages its own updates and all this other great stuff. Uh, you, you get this installed and chances are you'll forget that you have it because suddenly stuff will just keep working in QuickTime and you'll download something and it'll work and then you'll send it to a friend and they'll say, hey, this doesn't work. And you say, yeah, sure it does. I, I launched it in QuickTime. And then you'll remember in the back of your head, oh, yeah, I've got Perian installed. Dude, you should install that, too. So, oh, I yeah, get that because right now I do a flip for Mac, as you probably do. Yeah. No, you don't. You probably use Perian. I use Perian. Yeah. Because I use that, but it only handles, I think, uh, WMV and, you know, a few other things. But, uh, oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to try that. Actually, I got to, you know, I got to hook up my mom because a lot of times my mom has a relative across the pond who, uh, in Germany who is a Windows user, right. sadly, and she'll often send <laughs> my mom videos and my mom calls me, which is uh, why I think I'm going to get her an iPad, though that may not help. Oh, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, And she's right. like, I can't play these videos, John. What the heck is wrong? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, it's quick time and this and this. Uh, I'm next time I'm over, I'm going to install this. And then she won't call me <laughs> about the videos that, that her sister sends her that she can't see. Yep. Yep. Nice. Very good. Very yeah, good. Oh, I like it. Impressive. I totally forgotten about it today. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, dude. Uh, Rob had uh, had emailed and had actually asked about, of course, the holy grail of having a unified iTunes library for the household that, you know, it's, it's the the it is. It's the holy grail that doesn't exist until Apple uh, allows it to. And yes, there's ways of doing it, but then you lose the ability to sync and this, that well, and the other thing. There's home sharing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, I haven't really used it too much. There uh, is home sharing's OK. Um, it's not automatic with existing data, and it also okay. doesn't share things like play count and uh, and ratings and, and playlists and all of that. What you can do is you can tell it, look, anytime uh, and this is with a built into iTunes home sharing. Uh, anytime I have uh, I download a file or I buy a song or buy an application for my you know, iPhone or iPod touch or whatever. Anytime I do that or I download a movie, I want it to automatically be copied to this other computer and it will do that. Or you can go in manually and say, Hey, you know, does, uh, does, does she have the new, you know, Dave Matthews album? Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to go grab that. Right. So you can home sharing will let you finally copy data back and forth, Mm -hmm. but it's not automatic in terms of the old stuff. And it doesn't sync up all the, uh, all the play counts tune ranger from, Acer Tant, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's A-C-E-R-T-A-N-T dot com. Uh, Tune Ranger 
will do all this automatically and it will sync am amongst your house. It still requires each computer to have its own iTunes library. So you've got tune duplication all over the place. Uh, but that's Apple's fault. And Tune Ranger simply lives inside that world and makes the best of it, uh, at least based on the description. Rob, I, Rob asked me about it today. I said, well, I don't know. But you know what? That's cool stuff found, man. So uh, so it went on the list. So it's, you know, it's something for those of us that have multiple listeners in the same home. So mm -hmm. sweet. Yeah. Uh, two other things, Sean. One is called Quiet Read. And. There's a lot of things that do similar stuff like this. The idea is you're browsing the web and you want to store a link that you want to go read later. Now, some of us will leave that open in Safari and hope that we don't forget and close off our tabs. Right. Uh, some of us use a service called Instapaper, which is available in both free and, and paid versions. Uh, this one's a whole lot simpler. It just sits in your menu bar. You just drag a link there and uh, and it stays there and, until you go and visit it again and then it goes away. So quiet read. Yeah. Bamboo.com. Uh, screenshot. Yeah. Looks good. It's simple. You know, I, I like simple apps. It's like I see it. I get what it does. I don't need to read seven pages of documentation to learn the nuances. Just, yep. There it goes. Works. Great. Thanks. And then this one, <laughs> this last one called platypus. You want to, you want to talk about what this does, John? This is cool. Geeky, but cool. Well, evolutionists would, would be really upset about this, but, um, <laughs> Well, you know, I just got to look at, plat uh, you know, the platypus in general. What the heck was somebody thinking? I mean, it's just a, <laughs> a wacky combination. And the problem is I haven't read it. I, I'm looking at the page right now. Okay. So, so maybe I, you could uh, maybe we could bounce back and forth. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm so reading the, about it right now. The idea behind platypus is that you have certain things that you do from the command line. Ah, okay. I see. Right? Uh, okay. Script. Uh, okay. I, I, I think I get the gist of it, but, but go on. Okay. So you have certain things that you do from the command line. And, uh, you know, maybe you don't want to have to keep going to the terminal to do them. Or maybe uh, you want to say, you know what, I want to do this, but uh, you want to do it, too. And you don't want to have to go to the terminal. So what Platypus does is it lets you take command line tools or command line operations and turn them into graphical Mac OS X apps. Uh, in a very, very straightforward way. I mean, it's, you know, literally a couple of clicks and then boom, you're good to go. So uh, it, it's interesting. I haven't messed with it a whole lot, but uh, but it sure seems okay. like something that that could be very useful. In fact, we may right. wind up, you know, with all the terminal stuff we talk about, John, maybe, you know, maybe we use platypus and we build a little library and we just link people to it. All and right. say, go now I this. dig what it does. because okay. I, I've actually been uh, for various reasons uh, going to be reeducating myself on certain languages. Like uh, I'm going to dive back into Java. I haven't done that in a while. Okay. But the thing that caught my eye here, what platypus does is it supports a whole boatload of shell script languages. I see they have Perl. Python, PHP, Ruby or Ruby on Rails, expect TCL, AppleScript. Oh my gosh, that's like everything. So, so, so it appears to me what this does is it will encapsulate things written in these scripting languages into something that's uh, somewhat portable, which, which uh, sounds pretty darn cool. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because messing with some of those is, is, is kind of down and dirty work sometimes. Uh, you know, Perl, Python, all that stuff is usually text-based kind of nastiness and you know of course you can get a nice development environment but uh okay i i just like the platypus <laughs> <laughs> so that's our that's our cool stuff found so uh let's go back up and let's catch one or two of these follow-ups before we're uh 
before we're out of town, out of time here. So, Ivan. Hey, John and Dave. Um, my name is Ivan from West Palm Beach, Florida. I'm calling on about Mac Geek Up 239 when the guy um, talked about creating a the second uh, user account on your computer when problems arise. Um, one reason why that won't uh, really work, and you nailed it on the head, Dave, also about the uh, administrator account. If you can't get into your own account, you should create an, another additional admin account. Um, but one reason why it won't work is because, let's say you're installing a system preference pane. When you install the system preference pane, it will say, <clears throat> do you want to install it for this user or do you want to install for all users? If you install for all users, it's going to get installed in the uh, essentially the preference panes under the root instead of under the user. So even if you do create the, let's say you're having a preference pane problem and you install the user account as needed, that preference if you s selected that specific preference pane to be installed for all users, you're still probably going to have that preference pane problem. Uh, I mean, the problem might not happen under that user, but if it was a problem with the preference pane and you in installed it under all users, you would probably still have the problem. Uh, you can cut me off now. All right. So, yeah, it, it, he, he brings out a, an important point that, that we may have glossed over. When you're installing a preference pane and it asks you, right, John, install for this user or install for all users – if right. you choose all users, it doesn't just go and install it into each user's user account. It mm. installs it into a system-wide place that all user accounts, current and future, will see. And that's an important distinction. It pollutes. It pollutes the, 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 the system. Department. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And that's, that's, a, yeah. that's a bad thing. So uh, definitely appreciate that, uh, that follow-up, Ivan. That was, uh, that was good stuff. Yep. So. I, I want to skip ahead, brother. Oh, we're skipping uh, ahead. I oh, thought we're, we're skipping to the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, time is time is of the essence. Oh. Is there one thing you want to do? Is there something you wanted to do, John? Should we? Should yeah, we... we'll do. We'll do it next time. All right, cool. No, I saw it, but uh, no, we'll get it next time. Again, we we have way more stuff, <laughs> and we yeah. thank you. The yeah, it's great for yeah. providing us with all this amazing, you know, tips found and uh, cool stuff found and follow ups and and all that. Yeah, it's it great. Show what it is. It, I love it. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right, yeah. yeah. iPhone Alley is Michael Johnston's home. He converts this show to AAC for you and for us. Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get this show from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebone Software, PDF Pen from Smile on My Mac, and Notebook from Circus Ponies. And Dave, yeah, no, no, it's not because it's well, not it. Did we mention it? No, there's this big show coming up. We did mention it right at the beginning, very right yeah, out of the gate. <laughs> All right, so we'll see you at MacWorld. If you're going to Mac, going to MacWorld, we'll yes. see you. That's right. Tweet us. There's this party thing going on. I think uh, limited you know, availability. I think we got a couple of tickets left. You yeah. know, L limited. There is that link. Go, go ahead if you haven't signed up and you're coming to MacWorld. Uh, sign up at the, the secret link for ticket requests. I cannot promise you at this point that we'll accommodate you. It's uh, we, we we had we had more room for a little while, and now it's it's actually getting pretty tight. So, but try it. It, it certainly doesn't hurt. And if you catch us on the show floor, of course, John and I'll be uh, on Thursday the eleventh, twelve thirty p.m. Pacific Standard Time, doing a podcast live on the show floor. Come Bring and ask your, your questions. questions. Yes. 
stump the geeks. That's right. That's right. So definitely come and do that. That'll be uh, that'll be a blast. All right, cool. Let's get out of here. All right, out of here. to fly and there may be a full body scan and all i could say is i hope we don't get caught made up